2: Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, impartiality, targeted TV advertising, and the halcyon days of extravagant press trips. Plus, the latest attempt to combat disinformation online, and are competitions the way to discover new podcast talent? And in the Media Quiz, it's the end of the road for some long-standing media luminaries. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining me today, we welcome back the online journalist and podcaster from theweek.co.uk, Rebecca Gilley. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. What is hot in Rebecca's trending world at the moment?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, I'm a big film fan, and it's gearing up for all the autumn film festivals now, so I've been really enjoying following those.
2: Yeah, Armando Iannucci's new movie coming up at the London Film Festival, David Copperfield. I'm quite intrigued how faithful that will be. What else uh, has caught your eye?
1: Um, Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. Um, The one I've been following quite closely, which is ironic because it's not actually going to be in any of the autumn film festivals, is um, Greta Gerwig's Little Women movie. I'm a huge fan and it's got an amazing stacked, stacked, stacked cast. It's like uh, Saoirse Ronan, Laura Dern, Florence Pugh, Meryl Streep's got a part in it.
2: So when you say you're a huge fan, do you mean of the book or the previous film adaptations?
1: I mean both, so and you, all, and the other film adaptations. So
2: you're here for Winona Ryder.
1: I am absolutely here for Winona. So, okay, Ryder. so
2: you're okay. But you are intrigued by the new version enough to justify its existence. I saw the
1: trailer, and do you know what? They move their hands too much. I'm like, that's not period accurate. But I'm willing to set it aside. <laughs>
2: uh, and also joining us today, making her media podcast debut, it's the deputy editor of Campaign magazine, Maisie McCabe. Hello, hi. Welcome to the show. Um, you've just been investigating into flexible working
3: yeah well we've had a bit of fun this week well fun's probably the wrong word but an agency um, moved offices and as part of the move opened up flexible working to the whole whole of the agency and they actually did it then across the group um, and what they've found particularly over the summer for some reason is that the office seems to be a bit quieter on a Friday and well, why could that be yeah um, and so I think they'd imagined a sort of flexible working that meant Basically, you had to formally apply for it, and it had to be approved from HR. It wasn't necessarily, I had a really good Thursday evening, and, and so I'm going to catch up at home.
2: So, is that secretly skiving when people, you know, in inverted commas, work from home on a Friday? Or is there something to be said for doing a four-day week... Um, basically you know of your nine to five office hours and just freeing yourself up a bit and hanging loose a bit and so what if you don't work so hard on the friday well
3: so interestingly most of your action so it's the agency in particular is called starcom most of your action on on social media is that they're being really old-fashioned and too restrictive and this is ridiculous and you know we all should all be able to work flexibly and you know kind of it's 2019 the practicalities though of working in an agency means that you've got clients to service and also you're working in teams on joint projects and so I think um, for me the most interesting part of it is to find the, you know, that actually the answer is, is more complex to get to than sometimes the theory um, suggests.
2: Yeah and you've sort of seen the opposite trend haven't you in journalism Rebecca where OK, of course, there are still journalists out there who are tweeting and Facebooking whilst they're on a train and doing a bit of multitasking, which I suppose you could call, you know, working away from the office. But basically, staff journalists are getting milked, aren't they? It's not a case of do some flexible working. It's like as long as you're here, you're going to be filing four articles a day.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've heard so many stories from like, older people in the industry about oh, when I worked on the magazines. You know, they'd, if they were done by... I remember one of my old bosses saying to me, it was great because if the magazine went out on Friday and you'd finished by
3: Wednesday morning, like the pages were full, then you just went to the pub for the next hmm. couple of days. Well, similarly, campaign used to be weekly um, and only stopped a few years ago, but say before the internet oh. you know press day was Wednesday but that meant Thursday and Friday were kind of you know around Soho having nice lunches with you know me in contacts <laughs> but not necessarily you know it's a slightly different world when you know at the moment we've got sort of six bulletins to fill a day yeah so.
2: You see, I wonder, because when you're covering the advertising industry, and obviously that's where the money is, but it's also where there is a lot of that kind of work hard, play hard mentality. Yeah, it, it's legitimate to go out for a drink with those people.
3: Definitely. Um, yeah, it's sort of, um, you know, and it's part of, particularly when you're covering a patch, it's really important to get to know people properly. And it's a, a fact of life that, you know, if you have had a few drinks with someone, you know, you might might bond a bit bit closer than you might otherwise.
0: Mm.
2: Sorry, okay. <laughs> <There> is, <laughs> that sounds no, no, ominous. No. <laughs> I just think we've all <laughs> fallen down on the wrong side of that as well, haven't we? I can think of people have definitely had one drink too many whilst we've been chatting, but yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to start with uh, an advertising story. It's actually from Campaign Maisie, which is that Sky's targeted ad system, AdSmart, uh, has got a new platform in the shape of Channel 4. Um, What are the details here? Tell us, you know, if if people listening don't know what AdSmart is at all, tell us the story.
3: So um, Sky was quite um, innovative in introducing kind of, it's basically targeted ads that appear in the TV, so in the TV stream. So if you're, say, watching... Um, something on on Sky Atlantic, so not on catch up, mm-hmm. and then you get served with an ad break. That ad break will be tailored in some part to you, rather than necessarily just getting the same ads as everyone.
2: And is that just based on the information Sky have about their subscribers? Yeah,
3: and so I mean, which is pretty comprehensive. So it's been quite um, innovative. You know, it's really sort of led the way globally. But it's almost been too innovative that the market isn't is only kind of slowly starting to catch up.
2: Okay, and now Channel 4 are saying go ahead Sky, inject ads into our Channel 2. Well, so
3: Channel 4 is going to be selling the ads but they'll be delivered through the Sky platform. So earlier in the year Sky expanded AdSmart to Virgin Media Homes, Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously kind of adding Channel 4 channels as well that means, because previously it was just kind of Sky sold channels, so both the ones that it owns and the ones that it sells for other people. So adding Channel 4 I think almost doubles the kind of audience. Um, So it means that actually, you know, for advertisers they can run quite a large scale campaign now um you know targeting you know among the kind of three platforms
2: and how targeted really can they be because we're all used now to this kind of very micro targeted facebook world where you can say you know age 36 to 38 votes labor and lives in harpenden you can't do that presumably you
3: can get quite close like postcode kind of targeting so definitely when it first launched one of the things they talk about was say kind of car franchises you know kind of dealerships um, you know targeting local areas and things I think it's all like most things the more targeted and specific you want to go the more you have to pay for it so you know your kind of cost per thousand then goes up so it becomes a matter of kind of weighing the two things against each other
2: I mean I suppose this technology must be working Rebecca because you know I watched Sky Atlantic and I had not objected to the adverts <laughs> so I presume that either means that they're not so targeted that I noticed and thought my details were being sold <laughs> we were or they are so out. yeah or they are so personally targeted that I was happy to watch them
1: yeah I mean, I think if it's done right, you probably won't notice because it will just sit in your consciousness of everything else that's going on in your life. Like one of the interesting examples that I read in the coverage of this was, you know, if they know that you're a young single person with, like, you know, maybe with a high income, you'll get served an ad for a flash car. And if you're, they know you're a household with young kids or something, you get served, you know, some naff, sorry, <laughs> you know, <laughs> really boring big one. Like some boring big one. but um, it's the thing is, it's really, it shouldn't be ominous because we're all used to it online. Mm. You know, if you watch like all four, then you're being served, you know, different ads tailored to you anyway. Mm.
2: Well, in fact, this podcast has dynamic Mm. ads served by ACAS.
1: But there's always some weird barrier around like physical TV, isn't there? Especially live TV, where I think we find it a bit more sort of Orwellian when it's coming into a a television, a television which has been a fixture of your house since the 1950s or 60s. It seems more dystopian and weird than when we're just having it done to us on
3: uh, streaming platforms all the time. Yeah. I think, I mean, one of the things that Sky said is, I think it's sort of, you're 50% less likely to channel hop, apparently, when you're being served huh. tailored ads. Um, I don't know how robust that data is, but they're certainly using it. You know, it's, that, I mean, it's pretty impressive and obviously convincing for an advertiser.
2: But then, let's be honest, who's watching live TV anyway? I mean, really, <laughs> apart well, from the news or, you know, the final of a big thing, a sport or Britain's Got Talent or whatever, why would you? You just
3: Again, though, the, ads, the sort of reported um, you know the, the amount of TV we all think live TV we think we watch is usually a lot less than we actually watch, and mm. I mean obviously the numbers are generally skewed by older people who watch a lot more TV. But um, I think I can't remember exactly where it's at, but it we you know sort of still over three hours of live TV I think is the average to watch. Yeah, in it, today. It, it, yeah it makes like, sense
1: really because like. I think it's skewed a lot by the fact that students aren't watching it because they don't have TVs by and large. Yeah. Or like young people aren't going to sit in the front room with mum and dad. They'll stream stuff by themselves. But actually like most of my friends now, now that everyone's all got flats or what have you, people sort of have mm. drifted a bit back because it's something to have on in the background and it, st- it frees you from that pressure of I must find the perfect thing that really suits me to
3: watch right now.
2: Um, and this was a sort of mutual deal wasn't it? As yeah well, so I
3: think one of, one of the most interesting things I think is the journey Channel 4 has come on because if you look at like you know 2011 under David Abraham they were kind of all at Sky and how you know kind of really combative and now um, they've been doing big deals so they did a big the first deal with Sky was around kind of content sharing, and they've obviously shown Formula One and Cricket this year. And then this expanded deal, um, you know, including advertising, um, is, is just even quite interesting. They also did a big deal with the kind of the TV producers as well and extended the window of the kind of on-demand content that they can show on all four. So it seems like, um, you know, it's it's an interesting approach. They're obviously kind of putting their eggs in. Lots of baskets, really.
2: Yeah, quite hard to argue against things like Formula One being available on free-to-air TV in some form, isn't it? Yeah, definitely.
3: I mean, and for the, you know, you'd expect they'd want it on as well, you know, for the the sponsors and things.
2: Yeah. All right, let's uh, talk about audiobooks now. And some of the biggest publishers in the USA have brought a case against Audible for their plan to caption audio books. Uh, Rebecca, talk us through this idea of captioning audiobooks, because it's an Audible service that's been mooted but isn't even available yet.
1: No, okay, so imagine that you're listening to an audiobook and you'd like to see what the words look like and read along with it.
2: Imagine, if you were reading a book.
1: Yes. <laughs> now, it might sound hauntingly familiar. Um, so, basically, what's happened is Audible were planning on introducing a new service that would caption audiobooks as you were listening to them. Um, and they don't actually. I mean, Audible has the right to the audio version, but they don't have the right to the text version. Mm-hmm. What you can do there's a service where you can download the ebook from Amazon and you can sort of read along with it. But they don't actually have the rights to the text themselves. And so, the Publishers Association in of America in August uh, filed a lawsuit to block them from introducing the service, saying basically this is a really like bold-faced attempt to get around those laws and just kind of seize the text for themselves and um, Audible has now countered that saying that no that's not what we're doing it's all completely above board and it's not even out yet
3: etc.
2: I mean Maisie is this a useful feature really for Audible to innovate and deliver anyway?
3: It seems weird doesn't it? I kind of I wonder what the end game is it sort of feels like this must be one step towards something else I don't know if it makes any sense. We were talking about it in the
1: office earlier and my boss said well it would be good if you were listening to something in a foreign language and you could follow along, again, subtitling your audiobook. Yeah. Again, just the text of the book.
2: Just for- but, also, but if that's your use case scenario, buy the book. Yeah. I mean yeah. I I remember actually at university before Audible existed, but um when you could get audiobooks as they were then on CD from the library. You know, I had to read some pretty dry Victorian novels. And one of the ways I read along Was I thought, I'm scanning this, I've got such short attention span, I'm going to borrow the audiobook from the library and read it along with the narrator, because then I have to focus on it. (laughs) Um, But you can do that. You can get the book. You don't need it in the app.
3: It does feel like another kind of Amazon encroaching on another industry. I don't want to be too... Pessimistic about their motives. Be, be pessimistic. Yeah, it I sort mean, of what, feels like, you know, the publishers, you know, uh, do well to defend their rights. I well, think. this
2: is... Okay, so Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, these are big publishers in the USA. It does seem... that The hint seems to be that this is about trying to stop Amazon becoming more powerful.
3: Hmm. Yeah, which, you know, is, is worth a go.
2: But a bit late, <laughs> from a publisher's point of view? I mean, they're already their biggest <laughs> client, aren't
1: they? Well, and also, I think if you desperately wanted to read along while you were listening to an audiobook you probably would end up buying the ebook off of Amazon so it isn't not necessarily that the publishers are themselves losing out on a huge amount of custom if this was introduced but I think it's kind of about the principle of the thing as well you is know, it or
2: is it about dollars i mean well, i, I mean, imagine the amount that they get per dollars. sale on ebooks
1: yeah well i mean that's getting very little for the audiobook that is true but the thing is i can't really see how this would catch on because you know the the point of having a book be it and Ebook or a physical book is that you can flick through it and you can reread it, look at it, and that kind of thing. And you're not going to use basically captions to an audiobook in the same way. So I'm not sure. I mean,
2: the story behind this story is actually the growth of audiobooks, isn't it? Which mm. has been a surprise success. I should declare an interest that I've made programs for Audible in the past. But I mean, you know, they were seen, I think, for a while as kind of first just basically for people who had sight difficulties. And then are something that were a bit Web one zero, but, you know, not relevant now. We've got podcasts and everything else. Mm. But the BBC are making them for BBC Sounds. Audible downloads are on the rise. People like long reads. Everyone's going to be downloading the David Cameron audiobook because you get to hear it in his voice rather than reading his (laughs) bloody book, aren't they?
3: Some people might not want to. to When I say everybody.
2: (laughs) Everybody who was, you know, of that way inclined in the first place. All right, let's talk about fake news. An episode barely goes by without us doing that. This time the BBC has joined forces with Google, Twitter and Facebook to fight fake news... The details are a bit sketchy, aren't they, Rebecca? I mean, I'd like to outline them, but they're pretty scarce, really.
1: Yeah, so this is based on ideas that um, came from a summit that was held over the summer. Um, Yeah, BBC were there. The tech giants, as they like to call them in the news, were also there.
2: Amel Clooney was there, you might remember from the news. It was Jeremy (laughs) Hunt and Amel Clooney, wasn't it? That's the thing everyone remembers. Lovely
1: Amel Clooney. No one knows what they said. Um, And so they were there to talk about how to protect us, the people, from fake news particularly around elections um it was something that came up again during the Indian elections There was a lot of fake news going on there um and so they have they've come up with a plan but the plan is kind of mostly ideas a lot of it is just kind of principles and concepts um the main thing that's more concrete although again we don't really know how this is going to work but maybe that's how they want it is that the tech giants are going to work in are going to work together more closely to take kind of concerted action against fake news and try and halt it in its tracks so that's i mean it depends how they're going to implement it they haven't really gone into detail about that but the idea being that once twitter says oh look this fake story is going around facebook will be on it ready to stamp it out um which is an interesting idea and i think could probably be quite useful
2: I mean of course it's going to raise freedom of speech issues isn't it I mean I guess if something is provably untrue not a parody not an opinion but just something purporting to be fact that is not true I suppose there's an argument for those social media companies making sure people don't link to it but you can see how the owners of the copyright of that material would say well this is my right especially in america this is my right to publish this stuff
3: yeah and i just sort of it feels a bit kind of pr spinny to me as a kind of exercise i don't know it sort on. Of feels well it just feels like they're the tech giants they you know they have a lot of Ability to control things that they want to control, and they've kind of not solved this problem. And maybe I should be applauding them for giving it a go. And And but
1: it's just so subjective as well. You know what constitutes fake news, and in a way, I don't want to say I sympathise with the likes of Twitter and Facebook particularly, but it's not what their technology is built for. It's not built to read through the nuances of a story, and you know the fact checking technology really still has to be carried out mostly by people. And you know, and they have employed hundreds of people to do that, but. You know, so much is being uploaded every minute. And it just makes me think of, it reminds me of like, it's almost like an insurgency. The people spreading this news do have a bit of an advantage, you know, like Facebook and Twitter, like these Western militaries coming in. But then you've got, you know, individual people or small groups of people, you know, they can be very agile. They can hop from one thing to another. If they, if, you know, Facebook clamp down on one thing, they'll come up with another thing. You know, so it's very, very difficult to stamp out.
2: And Maisie, the Conservative Party, an advert on Facebook removed recently because they changed the headline on a BBC News That's story.
3: Pretty ridiculous. I mean, you sort of sometimes wonder how that meeting happened, really. T- tell I mean, us what happened. One of the issues um, with a lot of the announcements of, of money in the last sort of few weeks and months has been that the figure has been kind of an aggregated figure rather than necessarily being clear what, what within that is new. Um, and so there was a Conservative ad that... Um, linked through to a BBC News story. Um, but the, rather than using the actual headline that was in the BBC News story, which is, I think used £7 billion, the Conservative ad used £14 billion, um, which was a more complex number. And, and, I mean, I just can't understand how you would sit around and think that's OK, like as professional politics advisers. It just seems mad to
2: me. And as political marketers... Yeah. Who are just trying to get likes and shares and clicks? Because that advert said, "Tell your friends the Tories are investing 14 billion in education." That's true, but it's over three years. Yeah, and so do you? Can you see why a political marketer would think? it's worth the small amount of blowback from the few people that noticed that we changed the headline of the article because it's still a true fact.
3: I don't know. I mean, you know, this is one of the funny things. So kind of advertising, um, you know, from brands is a lot he- more heavily regulated than advertising <laughs> yeah. from politicians. And um, and so the idea that a, a kind of professional person would willingly, you know, willfully mislead, which is essentially what this ad mm. does, is quite shocking to me. I think, um, you know, you can't misrepresent the story that you're linking to i just i can't i just don't accept that that's appropriate
2: and i mean an embarrassment that they did get a slap on the wrist from facebook
1: yeah absolutely and i th- just think it's ridiculous you know we often think that the people spreading this fake news are you know kind of tinfoil hat type organizations or extremist fringe groups but you know you've got the conservatives doing it the, the epoch times was banned from advertising on facebook recently it's a um a big uh, sort of like a chinese expat Newspaper, because they were creating basically sock puppet pages to promote Donald Trump. Mm. I mean, it's just that kind of conduct where you just—I I guess maybe there's just been such a lax atmosphere that it has been normalised to play these kinds of dirty tricks. Especially if you think that the other side is doing the same thing.
2: And I suppose the danger is where there might be a blurred line. Like everyone can say, you know, if it genuinely fakes news, it's genuinely fake news, its its only intention is to, to spread a lie, then fine. But the danger is once you start implementing the technology, the practice, the code of conduct, then people will start saying, well, this article that I don't like in Fox News or the Daily Mail, that's fake news, when in fact, you know, it might be written by a professional journalist and include only things that are true... But it's there to ignore another part of the agenda yeah. and promote a political cause. It's
1: like that RNLI uh, article um, that caused a lot of fuss um, earlier this week, where it, there was a story in the Sun and the Daily Mail saying that they were investing billions of pounds of funding in buying bikinis for girls in Bangladesh while they were cutting jobs in the UK. Mm. And while then the facts of the story were essentially true, that they had been spending money on overseas programs, you know, for much more sensible things than buying swimwear generally, but. And, and they were there were job losses in the UK. They weren't necessarily connected, but they never said they were directly connected. They said they're doing X as they're doing Y, mm. and so it's not completely false. But it did cause, I mean, a justifiable, obviously, because the agenda was quite clear. But there was a big backlash against and against this idea that oh, they're stitching them up, which they sort of were, but they weren't. They weren't lying necessarily.
2: And this is where you've got the issue of everyone looking for the inference in every utterance on social media, and as we record today. Uh, the BBC political editor, Laura Koonsberg, is in the middle of a Ferrari on Twitter. There's a hashtag going around, Koonsberg out. Because she retweeted uh, a tweet by the guy who harassed... The Labour Party activist, I should say in this context, who harassed... But you mean,
3: I think you mean the, the father with the poor, poor, well, daughter, poor exactly. elder. Uh So
2: the Labour Party activist who harassed the Prime Minister whilst he was in the hospital and said, my daughter's very ill and the NHS isn't working and it's your fault. Laura Koonsberg simply retweeted his tweet in which he said something along the lines of I gave it to the Prime Minister today because they're not funding the NHS and she said, this is him. And people saw that as an invitation to dox him.
1: It's so interesting. Like, if you're not involved in, you know, if you don't spend much time online, that would go completely over your head. But it's such a... I didn't even think about it until, until today when this has happened. It's like it's such an online tactic of retweeting the person and saying this is the person who did that and not saying anything else. But the inference is take a look at their profile, like see who they are. Mm. They're not who they claim to be. But it's got to the point where it's almost like it's almost like a meme. All you have to do is say this is that person. I don't think she did mean it that way. But I only think that because she's in a very specific position and I don't think she's stupid enough to do any kind of obvious, you know, not to do anything like She wouldn't do anything like that online. Well, she's studiously impartial. Think, she
2: is presenting facts. It is him.
3: I think, yeah, I mean, I think there's a journalistic, you know, role and benefit to saying this is the person. I don't think... I, I struggle with it. I think it's really complex. I think the reaction to her is often overblown. Yeah. I think this obviously is a, a really sensitive topic. However involved in politics he is this is a man going through a difficult time but I think for me if you've tweeted explicitly I just gave it to the prime minister then you know you've got to that's a public accept, forum. You've Yeah, you've got to accept that yeah. that's that's a that's a kind of public statement he certainly
1: wasn't hiding if anything you know probably the opposite like he probably wanted to Make sure that it got, you know, a fair amount of coverage because that was the motivation for doing in the first place. He obviously thinks that this is a debate that we need to be having. But I think like it also speaks to there's such a fun, there's such a strange, you know, culture in this country where having a political affiliation is considered suspicious. And like, you know, (laughs) compared to the US where I don't think that's necessarily the case, people kind of wear their political affiliation on their sleeve. Mm. Whereas here it's sort of like, well, you've been discredited from having an opinion on a political yeah, topic well, because a, you've got an affiliation to a political party. That's
3: what, because that was going to be my next point. I don't think that it should negate his obviously experience. You no. know, he's there in the hospital, kind of dealing with the kind of pressures and can see them firsthand. You
2: but know, that, I don't. You can't really read into Laura Koonsberg's three words that she thought it should negate it. I mean, she was literally saying, "This is him."
1: Yeah, but it's so charged. I see both sides. I don't think she meant anything like that by it, but maybe could have been phrased with, you know, with a little bit more finesse to make it clear that this was a journalistic comment rather than an attempt to discredit him.
3: I think one of the interesting things is people said that by doing it, she took away from the fact the story about the, that Boris had referred to there not being any press there and actually obviously were lots of professional <laughs> journalists. Mm. I think what this fuss has actually done is taken the story away from either of those things and the story has now just become whether Laura Kunzberg is, is biased or not, which is kind of ridiculous when there's so many more important political issues to be talking about.
2: Okay, well, here are five emotionally uncharged, <laughs> distant, careful words. We'll have more after this.
0: Ready to pop the question? you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: The media podcast is joining forces with some of the UK's biggest podcasts from the guilty feminist to Griefcast, in support of the global climate strike on Friday, the 20th of September podstrike wants to encourage leaders to take action against climate change you can lend your support by using the hashtag podstrike on social platforms and learn more at podstrike.net time for part two now maisie and rebecca are still with me and let's talk about press trips specifically the golden age of free press jollies uh, because lots of journalists have been getting rather nostalgic for those halcyon days this week uh, after the magazine editor Vicky Chandler started a thread on Twitter asking people for their outrageous stories of press trip misbehaviour. Maisie, did you see this Twitter thread of any stuck in your mind? Uh, Well, one of my
3: favourites was the Instagrammer who um, went on a a pasta press trip, but doesn't eat pasta. (laughs) That was um, particularly special, I think. Uh,
2: There was also someone who brought along their friend and said they were a photographer, and he just got wasted the whole trip and took (laughs) pictures on his phone. Um, I also quite liked uh, the press group that travelled for three hours to see a jam factory, which turned out just to be an empty room with a jam machine in it. <laughs> uh, I, have you ever been on a press trip with amusing consequences, Rebecca? And uh, has the era ended?
1: I've There's some, but there's some of the material, I can't tell any about that I was on, because the people involved would probably recognise themselves. But I,
2: <laughs> I <laughs> That do, sounds so much more interesting than whatever you're about to no,
1: say. No, it's not the best one. The best one happened to a journalist I know, who went on a press trip where there was it was an alcoholic drink, was the organizer of the press mm. trip, and obviously alcohol was consumed. The journalists were sharing; basically, it was a common space with like little cubby rooms off the side. Um, and a male journalist consumed rather too much alcohol, went to relieve himself, confused the sleeping quarters of a female journalist for the toilets, oh with predictable and horrifying results.
2: And then they all had to travel together the next day. That's the thing. No, isn't he it, about actually these
1: press trips? left abruptly immediately afterwards the despite best. the pleas of the PRs to please not walk away just left and
3: made his own way home
2: that's for the best I that think, it, I, think mm. I
3: did respect that yeah.
2: because I don't know do you get to do many uh, press trips um, Maisie
3: I've done a few not not in recent times um i have tried. to have I have to say I've been trying to rack my reins to see if I've done anything worthy of common <laughs> I don't think I've been too terrible I had
2: uh, have you been sent on anything truly exciting
3: I went to Ibiza, um, to, yeah, to Amnesia with MTV once, but it was actually I mean a lot less kind of debauch than I was sort of hoping for. This
2: is the problem. It's, <laughs> often you get sent very glam. Sorry,
3: if she's listening, you know, if the PR's listening, I'm really sorry. It was lovely. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they often feel like they're going to be very glam and you accept the invitation because it's flying you to somewhere exciting and exotic. But I find the problem is the itinerary. I mean, maybe I'm just very diligent and most people only go to one or two things and then spend the rest of the time having fun with their mates. But if you go to all the things that they itinerize for you, every lunch and every meeting and every factory tour... You spend five days looking at something you never would have done on holiday because that's why you're not on holiday. You're on a press trip. It
1: is a very odd frame of mind. And when, you know, if you're saying to people who don't work in, um, you know, in journalism, oh, I'm going on a press trip, then it's all very like, oh, wow, free holiday. Mm. And sometimes, like, sometimes they can be like that, the less structured ones. But sometimes they are itinerated to the last minute and you can't, there's no choice to opt out because Mm. it's like, well, we're meeting in the lobby. They're driving us to this jam factory. Yeah. You then they're driving us to lunch, then they're driving us back. It's like being a hour, journalist in North Korea. It, it, it is. You do feel very supervised. That was one of the funny ones on the thread, I thought, when there was the journalist who said that she was really tired and ill and said <sighs> she wasn't going to come to something. And the PR said, well, I'm going to have to start letting your editor know if there's bad conduct.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that did seem a little bit harsh. I thought that was very harsh. But they are under a lot of pressure. And I think it must get extremely frustrating dealing with journalists who just want to... basically are kind of driven to drink the room dry eat everything that's available and then swim in the hotel pool and don't want to participate in any of the actual work
2: I mean it seems to me like the best press trips I mean the ones that actually work for the clients as well as for the journalists are the ones where the opportunity that's being offered is the thing they want promoted so in other words if it's a five star hotel and they give people a week in a five star hotel they can't go wrong really so long as that ends up on the social media platform and ends up in some sort of grateful PR coverage Where it goes wrong is they might be putting you up in a five-star hotel, but during the day you have to go on a tour of a washing machine factory.
1: (laughs) You actually did that, didn't you?
2: I I did. That (laughs) wasn't a made-up example yet. I knew
1: that was a manic date.
3: I've
2: heard it before. (laughs) (laughs) I got flown to Berlin by Siemens, yeah. It was... um, I mean, I, w- I went because I was going to Berlin.
3: Yeah, was I, it really good washing machine though? Do
2: you know what I mean? I absolutely was converted. If ever I buy a washing machine again, it will be a Siemens machine. I think
3: we have a Siemens that, actually. Let yeah, me tell you, been I've good. been to the
2: factory, and I'm telling you what those Germans—they really care about the acoustics and the design. But I got that message very quickly, <laughs> and I'd say by day three, I'd had enough looking at washing machines.
3: So you could have got that here, really.
2: Well, I'm not a washing machine journalist. I think that was the that was the issue. <laughs> um, but I mean, do you find them to be effective?
3: I think there's a balance isn't there because essentially I mean we can't be we're not supposed to be able to be bought really like I mean depending obviously sometimes in which part of journalism you're in so it's a fine line so a lot of the things I've done with contacts aren't necessarily uh, tend to be more kind of relationship building than necessarily outwardly press trips if Mm. that makes sense. Mm um but i remember the first one i went on was sort of a tour of regional newspapers you know glamorous life that i lead and um and there was just no story on that in that mm. and it was quite hard as a rookie to be like not really anything for me to write yeah that's the thing
1: and it, and what's happening now a lot as well is that you know the one reason that this twitter thread was nostalgic is that they are becoming progressively less outrageous than they used to be you know purse strings tightening all through the media and now i think there was kind of an explosion of you know, social media influences etc and now brands are starting to realize that lots of these influences their influence is very overblown a lot of times it's you know just bought followers bots and that kind of thing And so companies are starting to exercise a bit more caution now around exactly how you know uh, extravagant the press opportunities are going to be for anything
3: i think the key thing has got to be the story that you're you know, you're wanting mm. the journal. You know, if you're a PR, there should be, a you know, organising a big press trip. Not least if you're spending a lot of money on it. You should have a good story to tell. And, you know, I think, you know, they you can't hide the fact there's no story with, you know, five-star hotels, I don't think. Or is, is that too well, old-fashioned Well, I've been kind to kind some, some like... shocking
2: gadget launches <laughs> because they happened in the bar at the Dorchester. I mean, I have done it.
3: But did you then write about the...
2: Not, the... I did, but I suppose in no more glowing terms than I would have done. Yeah. But I guess it just guarantees you're going to talk about it, doesn't it? Like, if you've got a lot of things to choose from, you'll go to the press launch where they give yeah. you a freebie.
3: I'm thinking more of, like, big trips, though. If you're mm-hmm. taking someone away for days, you have to have some sort of story to tell and be putting in front of people who are going to be interesting, produce some good copy. Or
2: I just wonder if, actually, social media, to an extent, has ruined the fun of these trips because the implication of a lot of the stories on this Twitter thread was kind of... Back in the old days, you know, while the cat's away, you know, what happens in Vegas kind of thing, you know, was the implication. Like, all these people used to go out, get pissed, and who cares about what copy they wrote afterwards, and it was just a sort of quid pro quo. It's not that now, because they'd actually ask specifically, wouldn't they? And, Rebecca, you do do this kind of press trip. They do ask, don't they? You need to write about this in these places. We expect to see a picture on Instagram.
1: Well, I've never been ordered in those you know harsh terms but yeah a lot of times you know there there is you know we do encourage you to share a photo on Instagram with this hashtag and tagging this thing mm. you know which most of the time isn't really a huge burden but there is definitely an expectation that you are you are actually working and that it's not just a kind of goodwill exercise Although some of them still are hanging around, actually. You know, you do still get the event where the only purpose is for everyone to just get along with each other and make friends. But, you know, most of the time now, they are working to a more set list of these are the outcomes that we need to produce. Which is probably, I suppose, better on the
2: whole. Let's talk about podcasts now. And a first-person perspective on the aftermath of war has won ACAST's first launch pod competition... Uh, This is an attempt to find new podcasting talent. Rebecca, can you tell us about the winner?
1: Yeah, the winner was a podcast called Things We Left Behind. Um, It's by two sisters, the children of um, immigrants from Somalia, and they're talking to other people who have um, fled their countries for various reasons and the experiences that they've had.
2: And Maisie, ACAST aren't the only ones relying on competitions to find (laughs) talent, are they? Spotify has just had another round of its sound-up. Yeah,
3: and then seems to have uh, done really well. I think it was sort of three from the last cohort from last year, um, kind of got funding for their ideas. And um, I think we can sort of be a bit glib about competitions. But I mean, anything that's introducing new voices and kind of more diverse voices into the space has got to be a good thing.
2: Yeah, so the Spotify competition was specifically to try and find women of colour to make podcasts. And the Acast won the prize, if you like, is that your show gets developed by Wise Buddha, the production company, and turned into a funded show. But like you say, we all have the potential to get sniffy about talent competitions. Let's do that for a second. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing about podcasting, and of course, you know, as a podcaster of some longstanding, I welcome diverse voices getting involved. And of course, you want as many people to get involved. But the thing that was exciting about podcasting as a platform was exactly that there was supposed to be a low barrier to entry. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to make a podcast, especially now when you have a microphone in your pocket on your phone. So, of course, you understand people need some mentoring, need a helping hand. But is this competition thing a bit weird? Because actually the whole point of a podcast is you just... Make the bloody thing.
3: yeah, so people need to hear it, though. That's a problem, I think. And sometimes there's so much choice. You know, the danger is that that you know you don't you're not always listening to the best thing because you might not even know it exists or be able to find it.
2: Mm. And so, shining a light on, I think so stuff that otherwise might go unnoticed Yeah, I
3: mean, obviously, you know, kind of everyone wants to be a kind of homegrown, self-made superstar. But you know, if if a few people get a bump up, I'm not sure that's a bad thing.
1: And also, it's such a crowded space now. And
3: yeah, the idea it is supposed to be that it's
1: very democratic form of media and that anyone can do it which is true but I also think we're so spoiled for choice now with amazingly well produced podcasts professionally produced podcasts that I think our ears have actually become like super sensitised to audio quality because I know so many people uh, I've recommended them a podcast or what have you and they've said oh I tried to listen but the sound quality wasn't very good so Mm. I stopped and like it's so much easier to reach an audience if it does have that professional touch and it's hard to compete when the likes of you know the bbc new york times you know they've got like whole teams working in studios putting out these incredibly well put together podcasts
2: don't forget the week
1: and the week very sophisticated Unwrapped. recording every, setup that we have for
2: every that week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually since we mentioned spotify let's touch on that briefly and obviously they've done a huge investment into podcasting over the last year which we've talked about on the show before but do you get the sense that that's cutting through? I mean, a year ago, it was still the case that basically everyone was using Apple podcasts to listen to podcasts if you look or at the yeah, well Acast <laughs> via Apple podcasts really, if you look at where people are getting it whereas now it does seem to me just sort of ear to the ground that more people are using Spotify, and actually more people use the idea of streaming rather than subscribing and downloading.
1: I think more people are using Spotify Premium. I wonder if that's the link. Like, most people I know now... like I'm not because I'm a cheapskate, but most of my friends and colleagues are using Spotify Premium, which means that you can download stuff if you want to and that, obviously, you haven't got any ads and that kind of thing. And I wonder if that's why people, you know, listening on the go, that they're choosing to do it on Spotify rather than on the podcast apps, which are generally completely free.
2: It's a convenience thing for me, I must say, when I do listen to Spotify, it's because... Uh, I've got an iPad in my kitchen, which is an old iPad that I only use for syncing via Bluetooth to my radio in the kitchen. And so if I want to listen to a podcast on the radio in the kitchen, it's the easiest thing to fire up the app I was listening to anyway, which is Spotify, and find a podcast. It's just, it's in a place where I go for sounds.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I think, you know, it, it'd be interesting to know, obviously Spotify don't share that many figures. It'd be interesting to know how, how how their kind of Spotify listening compares to the to the general music. But um certainly seems to be, anecdotally, a growth area.
2: I mean, do you think there's yet? Yeah, because people used to say, "Oh, we're still waiting for the kind of Netflix of podcast to come." Are we still waiting, or is the answer going to be the mix of things that we have at the I moment?
1: I just don't. I just don't think that that the podcast space is really um, organized like that at the moment. You know, like Netflix and Amazon Prime wouldn't really be competing if everything you could get on Netflix, you could basically also get on Amazon Prime. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I use, I've got an Android, so I use um, Podcast Addict, but there's like a million other apps like it where you can get basically the same things. Although you are seeing the, you know, now you've got stuff like Stitcher Premium, you know, pay extra to get into the archives of some of the, of some of like the big podcasts with like a big um, back catalogue to mm. go through. But I don't know that that's particularly popular. I don't know anyone anecdotally who pays for podcasts.
2: Actually, a very small news story that isn't in my scripts but I noticed, is that uh, Pocket Casts have recently gone free. Um, so that's long been my podcatcher of choice, by the way. I say with no commercial affiliation whatsoever. I just think it's good. Um, but it used to cost pound fifty or something, and it's now free. So uh, do, do try that. Uh, right, uh, just time for our thrilling media quiz. Sound effect. <laughs> I'm going to challenge you to spot the salient detail from three recent stories. Each one relates to something or someone will lose from the media landscape when you think you know the answer you buzz in with your name so Maisie you will say Maisie and Rebecca you will say Rebecca excellent primed I'd say ready let's go one what was the name of the UK's entry for the Eurovision Song Contest 2018 I'm looking for the name of the artist and the song Buzz in with your name when you know the answer Rebecca, <laughs> that's a hesitant buzz.
1: Yeah, it was something like Soren or Serene or Suri, Suri.
2: No, it really wasn't. That's
1: 2018. You didn't. You said 2018. It was Suri. No, 2019. You're thinking of Michael. What's his face?
2: You're right. Producer Rebecca is absolutely mortified. <laughs> but you're right. The answer I was looking for was Michael Rice. With do you know the name of the song from 2019,
1: not 2018? Oh no, it was awful. Oh, lo- love something
2: bigger than us oh yeah yeah. but still I was impressed that you knew your Eurovision so (laughs) two points for you on that Uh, but why am I asking about Eurovision Maisie in relation to things we might lose
3: Uh, well so we're not we're going to miss the the TV show where we get to choose our British, well, UK representative. So now the BBC and BMG are going to decide on the UK's entry um, rather than putting it to a public vote because we've not been very good. Yeah, we just all. haven't been good at it at all.
2: Yeah, so I mean, one less gig for Mel Gedroich every year, but <laughs> <laughs> otherwise. Is you know, she
3: needs some that these days. <laughs> is
2: Sorry, there really an issue with this? I mean, because it goes in patterns and waves, this, doesn't it? There was a time where it used to be public selection. <laughs> it goes in Katrina and the Waves. Yeah. Uh, there was a time when the public didn't choose the song. Then we did. Then we didn't again. So does it matter if, if you know, just because recently we've been choosing turkeys, uh, the BBC have decided to let BMG choose the song, or is that losing democracy?
3: I just, I just, I think I just can't see us winning Eurovision for a while. <laughs> I feel like, I mean, you know, I don't want to go too overboard with the political voting, but, um, but it's got to be absolutely fair, nothing well, you to know, do with the music. Has it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I just can't see it.
2: Okay, you've still got it all to play for, Maisie. Stay in the game. Which women's magazine announced the end of its print edition last week? Maisie. Maisie.
3: M- Marie Claire.
2: Yes, it Just was Just in Marie the Claire. UK. So the print edition is continuing elsewhere?
3: Yes, in France and the US. So, I mean, this is sort of, you know, there's a big issue, really, in, in women's magazines, women's kind of written journalism. We've had lots of closures on lots of digital sites suffering as well. This year, obviously, we've had the closure of the pool. There was a, a website called Debrief that Bauer had that kind of folded back into Grazia. I think there's it's really difficult time because you've got lots of women consuming more media than ever before but actually kind of female focused targeted media is really struggling to make the numbers add up Mm. and um and no one's got the answer yet and actually, all all we're seeing is is kind of the departure i mean obviously marie claire's going to still exist in a an online product but um you know it's certainly not going to be producing the same amount of content
2: is the problem Rebecca that as a print title it was just a bit mid-market I mean you know Vogue is doing fine isn't it the problem is Mary Claire was just a bit like not as glossy as Vogue and you know a lot more glossy than Heat
1: yeah I mean I didn't I never picked it up but I always I think one of the reasons is it just didn't seem to have a place like in my head it would be like oh well there's the sort of young people's magazines it's like Cosmo and that kind of thing and Mm. then you go straight up to like Red and Prima and that kind of thing. Mm. So I think it's suffered in that sense but also you know like obviously it's a tough time for print publications across the board but I think especially so in women's magazines because social media has eaten into so many of those traditional areas that women would be going to magazines for you know stuff like fashion beauty a lot of people get that fixed through instagram now so it is difficult to kind of make yourself heard and make people willing to pay for a print product
3: we've been quite aggressive hearsts uh, cosmo went a pound went down to a mm. pound a couple of years ago and that had a huge impact and the you know obviously that was kind of contributed to the close of glamour as well which had, had been the biggest women's magazine
2: okay maisie for a bonus point to equal rebecca's two <laughs> and therefore give us drama for the tie break can you also tell me which national newspaper is cutting its publication from weekly to monthly?
3: Oh, The Voice. Correct,
2: yes. Uh, aimed at the black community in Britain going monthly. Do you understand why?
3: Uh, again, I mean, you know, this is just a decision lots of publishers are having to take. Um, again, people are getting lots of content online. Um, you know, the sort of exclusivity for kind of a weekly publication. But it's The Voice was wild. actually
2: breaking even, more or less. They were losing two grand a year. I mean, you know, compared to the big yeah, titles. But I think not they
3: a lost 2,000 a year the last couple of years mm. i guess they're kind of you know trying to push forward to the future the idea is that by going to a monthly you can do kind of maybe bigger investigations more thoughtful longer pieces and that actually the place for the kind of shorter form is online i mean that's something that we're doing at campaign we went monthly about two and a half years ago so um i think it's you know and obviously there's lots of savings that come with that in terms of not printing each week so
2: and i suppose it means better quality journalism too doesn't it having longer to actually come up with
3: hopefully you know you know we think i think i can see the reasoning behind it i mean i'm sure there's lots of people who really enjoyed it every week who'll be disappointed but i think it you know it's hard to make kind of weekly publication work you
2: have beautifully given us a tie break situation now for question number three so here it is i can feel the drama i don't Mm -hmm. know about you which four word phrase did john humphreys used to describe the program he presented for the last time this week which four-word phrase did John Humphreys use as he ended his career on today? in with your name when you know the answer. I'll give you the first word. It was today. Today matters for...
3: I'm sorry, I still already at work. <laughs>
2: Well, we've got a tiebreak situation, <laughs> haven't we, then? Uh, John Humphrey said in his final appearance on Today, today matters for tomorrow, uh, which was, you know, a, a, a slightly cheesy. It, 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 to be fair, he admitted as much. Uh, slightly cheesy way of saying that he believes that uh, Radio Force flagship news programme still has a place. I how, the kind is- how magnanimous of him. <laughs> <me. laughs> <laughs> it's not going to all fade after I leave. Uh, uh, I suppose the question is, does it? Does it still have a place? Uh, you know, I mean, he's saying across the last 32 years that he's been there you know it's carried on doing what it's always done and, and he does those famous so called Rottweiler political interviews is there still a place for that
3: I listen to it every day but I struggle with it sometimes personally because not, I think it can be it's you know too combative sometimes and then also not you know don't find that they always get the and I think sometimes they miss the story by trying to be kind of you know having that too aggressive tone personally yeah. um, and then I, yeah I, I sort of don't enjoy it particularly, but I still listen every day, well six days a week, which is kind of depressing isn't It's got it? a masochistic experience yes.
2: Well it's almost kind of necessary isn't it, If you, especially if you work in the media or anything that follows the news, it is the ultimate produced briefing of what is going on and all the big players go on and talk and you might not like the way they talk, you might not like the fact they've only had three minutes, you might not like the phony argument that's been placed around it, the objectivity that has to be placed on it by the presenters, but it is a good way to get a briefing
1: I've never listened to a minute of it
2: Interesting, Why?
1: Um, I feel like I decided at some point at uni as I was assimilating into the middle class that Radio 4 was going to be my line in the sand that, and I've stuck to it that's my red line I'm like I don't need it actually that and Fleabag are the two things where I'm like no I've given the, the middle class enough and I just don't want to do that anymore and so that's why I'm bigoted against it so I actually can't I mean I can't actually criticise the quality of anything that's on radio for I'm sure it's all fantastic
2: fair enough and and refreshingly honest do you think John Humphrey's leaving might bring some more audience to it who might be put off by him
3: Um, if it's kind of accompanied by maybe a switch in tone potentially Mm. I guess if they are all kind of continuing the same vein but one interesting thing
1: though is that John Humphrey's name would trend almost every morning on Twitter with angry people being really asked about the way he was approaching a certain topic and it did bring a certain amount of you know um sort of social media relevant to a programme that otherwise might not (laughs) quite be in that demographic. Like, Like how many men of John Humphrey's age are trending on Twitter? And I I do
2: think some of the criticism against him from a younger generation of listeners is kind of unfortunately based on the fact that he's white and old and male. Um, He is a consummate broadcaster, and I sort of sometimes feel like... He can
3: be a bit kind of sexist and not... Of course he can!
2: Congratulations to both of you for your joint uh, winnership... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of the quiz
3: feel like it was more like a loser <laughs> uh,
2: victory was the word I was looking for but there you go thank you brain three seconds too late that is it for today thank you to my guests Maisie McCabe and Rebecca Gilly. if you like what we're up to here on the MediaPod and you want to help us keep doing it then do consider taking out a voluntary subscription you can head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round you can also catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website themediapodcast.com i've been ollie mann the producer rebecca grisdale sharing the media podcast is a ppm production until next time bye bye.
0: even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things